the podcast that devours the arts. I'm Jonathan Gressel. Thanks for coming along today. In a bit, you'll hear my conversation about conducting in the world of choral music with Tim Shantz. He reminisces about the highlights of his time with the Spiritus Chamber Choir and the Luminous Voices, and speaks about the sheer power of human voices raised together. He struck me as someone who is constantly trying to keep his ears and mind open, ready to deepen his understanding about the works he knows and discover what's new around the corner. I will also tell the story of the strange coincidence involving two favorite composers of the Baroque era, George Frederick Handel and Johann Sebastian Bach. It involves their run-in with not exactly modern medicine. It's a story I teased in the very first Culture Monster trailer. Also, for those that remember the story of the million-dollar loony, I'll mention that Canada is not immune to such crime. Toronto police advised recently of artwork stolen from the Galerie de Belfure. The thieves made off, in their Toyota Sienna, with four works, together worth over $250,000 U.S. Police have publicized photos of the art, as well as grainy surveillance footage of the suspects. The investigation continues. Let's start with the Culture Monster Bite of the Day. This is where I recommend something I have been devouring recently. Today's bite, an unusual novel by Julian Barnes. Barnes is well-respected in his native UK. Four of his novels have been shortlisted for the Booker Prize, but is a bit less well-known on this side of the Atlantic. Culture Monster recommends... A History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters. And if the title suggests a bit of postmodern whimsy, well, that is what you will get in Chapter 1, which is a retelling of the story of Noah's Ark from the perspective of some stowaways. Woodworms. Some of the other chapters are filled with similarly witty fantastical tales, but that is not all you will get here. Chapter 5 is the story of the famous French painting, The Raft of the Medusa, itself a fictional depiction of a true event. Barnes gives a history lesson on the actual events that inspired the painting before delving into a close analysis of the artwork itself. If, like me, you haven't been to the Louvre recently to see it for yourself, most editions of the book include a full-color reproduction. The painting is, of course, a stylized depiction of this terrible event, but the distortions, fictions, if you will, of the painting, work to gain interest in the viewer. But also, they are, in effect, lies that are meant to tell an underlying truth. Part of the theme of this novel is that histories and myths may not be so different from one another. Even thinking about our own past experiences, in the retelling of them to others, they become stories and tales with logic of their own. It is seemingly impossible to see the whole picture, even of ourselves. The adventure of love, and what can be a more dramatic event in life than that, is inherently mysterious, powerful, indelibly real, even when it has no explanation. A history of the world in ten and a half chapters features made-up tales, history lessons, myth-telling myth deconstruction, 
art criticism, even speculation about our ultimate fate. Despite that grandiose description, it is not a very long book, and Barnes's deceptively simple prose is easy to get through. This is not Barnes's most popular book. That probably is Arthur and George, another fictional retelling of true events. The Arthur in that title is Arthur Conan Doyle. A History in the World in Ten and a Half Chapters is a fascinating and strange novel which rewards the interested reader richly. Request it from your local library. George Frederick Handel and Johann Sebastian Bach never met in person, although they were born the same year, only some 80 miles apart. Their careers led them in different directions, but they do have another connection. They both had interactions with oculist and self-styled chevalier John Taylor. Taylor was a well-known figure who had written a book an account of the mechanism of the eye, in 1727. He also was named Royal Eye Surgeon to King George II. In 1750, he went on a tour of Europe to do eye operations. He would travel in a coach, painted with eyes, and had a hustling approach worthy of P.T. Barnum. He would have posters put up, he had a big speech prepared before any operation, and made sure his patient's eyes were bandaged up for several days. By the time the results would be revealed, he would be safely on to the next town. Of course, he always took payment in advance. Perhaps this was an advisable strategy in an era where medicine was not aware of bacteria or anesthesia. During his career, he blinded hundreds of his patients. One of his specialties was in couching, an ancient surgical intervention for cataracts. I'll spare you the details. While Taylor was in Leipzig in 1750, he did two operations on Bach. While Taylor later publicly declared them to be a great success, in real life the composer probably received an infection by the procedure, and it is said he was totally blind at the time of his death, only a few months later. Handel's eyesight had been failing for quite some time. Legend has it that the words from his oratorio Samson, Total eclipse, no sun, no moon, all dark, were a personal reference to this. Despite the fact that in the UK there were a variety of people who called Taylor a quack, in 1751 Handel did have at least one operation by Taylor which also led to him becoming completely blind. He would need assistance to finish what would be his last oratorio, and his active career essentially ended at this point. Handel died in 1759. While the ancient technique of couching for cataracts often did not work, 
the modern cataract surgery is based on a principle not so different. It continues to be a popular, safe, and powerful operation today. As leader of the Calgary Philharmonic Chorus, the Spiritus Chamber Choir, and co-founder of the Luminous Voices, Tim Schrantz has played a big role in Calgary's choral music community. Now a professor at his alma mater, the University of Alberta, we spoke about his career, thoughts on conducting, and his love of music both old and new. Conductor Tim Schrantz joins me now. There's so much to talk about. I'm really excited to have you here. Uh, the world of conducting choral music and luminous voices. But let's start at the beginning. Uh, what were your first experiences in music? I grew up in a singing family. Like it was something that we we did, um, not necessarily a lot at home, but it was something I sang at church, you know, and it, it, and everyone just sort of did it. So it was something you just do. It wasn't like a huge performance it wasn't just about that it was just something you do singing wise and also my parents um, you know chose to put me in piano lessons when I was young so my my early music education was at the keyboard piano and uh, you know of course that combines with very unique ways of listening and hearing things I mean you you we're all exposed to so much different music uh, through our lives um, I mean I do think of uh, singing along to Simon and Garfunkel at the at the stereo my parents stereo like I you know it's it it runs a broad range of in terms of my musical experiences and but I did grow up also going to the symphony and the Kitchener Waterloo Symphony where my hometown is in uh, Ontario and that made a big impression on me whether it was the school programs that we went to or my parents taking me uh, they were symphony subscribers and you know just being part of that world and then also attending you know huge uh, wonderful choral programs conducted by uh, Howard Dick in Kitchener Waterloo and there's quite a german population in that area and my swiss german roots as well with my background so i felt really connected to this music and there's you know a lot of bach that was performed i heard the bach oratorios and you know just had you realize later in life all the experiences that you have and how that um, influences you right so it's it's a huge part of who i am the, growing up singing being part of that tradition and then even into high school having really well junior high i had a wonderful amazing music teacher and i think back about how how much of an experience that was working learning kodai singing solfege in junior high i mean that is huge it and and it really lays a foundation and then more of that through high school. So it's really fortunate to have great music teachers. An important piece. That suggests that by the time you were through high school, you were very comfortable in the world of, of singing. 
and choral music. Did that mean that when you went to university, that was definitely what you wanted to be doing, doing something in music? I should say that it it was just part of what I did a lot of. And I, you know, growing up playing piano, playing in festivals, and also studying voice, I did voice and piano when I was growing up. And, and then to enter university, I chose to stay in my hometown and attend Wilfrid Laurier University. And I auditioned both with piano and voice and chose to start as a double major. That was really all sides of me trying to keep my chops moving forward and in these areas. But then after my first year, I realized that it's just, it was too much. Like it was dividing me. It was uh, felt like it was not something I could sustain all through a degree or it maybe wasn't the wisest decision. So I decided to go into just continue on with the piano performance for my degree. And it was also, I think really after my first year that I made a decision that I think I might want to do choral conducting. So I started to get that in my mind and I thought, you know, piano performance, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I mean, I could work towards concerto playing and recital playing, but I still get my thrills with singing too. And I think I'm going to focus on piano in performance and my, that instrument, but also use that as a tool for my future growth as a conductor. Uh, I remember that difficult decision at the end of my first year, because I thought, I, I can't sustain this quite the same way. And what, what should I do? So that was, that was a difficult decision, but I think a, a wise one for me at the time. And of course, being a singer, I mean, I think I was frustrated when I was younger about how much I could progress and improve. And there's a certain amount that just takes time. You can't rush it. And there's something about the, the tenor voice for me, the, the baritone voice that takes so many years to keep maturing. I, it, it wasn't happening fast enough for me. But the good thing is that I knew I could keep singing. Even if I wasn't studying voice, I could keep singing in ensembles and carry on that part of who I am. You're referring to the sort of physical maturation of the voice there. Yeah. The physical maturation is a long, slow, tedious process, actually. There's certain things that will not become easier until you reach you know, a certain age. You can pound your head against the wall because you're not able to quite do the things you want to do. But then in hindsight, I feel like, wow, it just some of that takes time. It takes time for the body to, to form certain sounds and be around certain sounds and be willing to make them. Yeah, it's 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 a fascinating process. It's a little different than just playing a different fingering, you know. It, it becomes part of your soul and your person. So it's a it's a, a long, slow maturation process. I mean, this means that you were pointed to conducting relatively early, but there doesn't really seem to be an obvious path to become a conductor. So what did you do then? You're right. I mean, I I toiled away as a undergrad in music and studied piano and and but then I got into teaching I was a private teacher as well I think most musicians do plenty of uh you know one-on-one private teaching it's a great way to keep learning your craft as well so you know I enjoyed that and I did think well maybe this is something I could continue doing for a long period of time but I had an itch to to carry on with the idea of conducting and uh, to learn more about it and I don't think I set out saying, I'm going to be a conductor. It's just, it felt like another step and that 
what's the next step for me to take? Well, I should go on with more studies. Maybe I should do a master's degree, go to graduate school. And so I searched for opportunities. I wasn't necessarily keen to jump to the U.S. at that time, but it was I was looking at programs in Canada and, and the University of Alberta stuck out as an interesting program that was unique. It was a different place for me. So I did reach out then did the audition at the U of A and really enjoyed the experience and meeting uh, Dr. Leonard Rotzloff, who I ended up then studying with. So that set a new course for me, leaving home and uh, moving to Alberta and then really immersing myself in the choral community in Edmonton for my uh, for my graduate degree. At that time, you think the the attraction of conducting would be that you would be in the center of so many people or that you would be sort of in the middle of the score of all the different parts of the score instead of just having one part if you were singing? I mean, is there a particular aspect which drove you at, at that time? I think it's curiosity. I mean, that's there's a curiosity of learning more. And it definitely is hearing all, all the parts, not just one, and wanting to to bring that together in in my own skills and 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 build my skills as a leader. Yeah, I felt like I had I had the wherewithal to continue learning and discovering this incredible history of choral music. I mean, there's so much music to choose from. It's, you could spend multiple live, lifetimes to just exploring all the, the history of what the music we have, in, in addition to new works, right? It just felt like, oh, this is an area. I love this idea of collaborative work. I love the sound of the human voice. I enjoy singing. I enjoy bringing people together to do things. and. So it, it sort of combines a number of my interests and skills and this whole idea of human interaction and what one can make out of that human interaction continues to inspire me today. I mean, this it's it's so beautiful what we can do with other people. And music is sort of the, the highest sphere in a way. Like it's, it's a very spiritual art uh, music. It's a very personal experience. But when we share that experience with others it becomes that much more elevated it's an incredible form of uh, communication that's that's the inspiration i don't think i had grand ideas two grand ideas of my own what i will be uh it's more and i think about this when i'm talking to younger people about what where they're going you see various steps ahead of you and how you could take them so i think for me it was an opportunity to build on some of my skills and see how far I could go. Keep down certain paths and take turns and right left turns and see where things lead. Well, speaking of that, then your turn, uh, your life did lead you to Calgary. How did that happen? Well, you know, I, it's still a bit of a circle tour because as I finished my master's degree in Edmonton and then chose to, I met my wife at the University of Alberta singing in ensemble, singing in choir. And we chose to use, move to the U.S. to do a doctorate. So I, I did my doctorate at, the, at Indiana University. And then um, after three years in Windsor, Ontario, working with the symphony there and at the School of Music, a job came up at, in Calgary. But two jobs, in fact. One that I had seen before and had some interest in, and that was uh, Spiritus Chamber Choir. It had been conducted by P.S. Samar at that point, and he was a resident conductor with the CPO, but also the chorus master position at the Calgary Philharmonic was coming up. So these two positions combined, I felt like this was a really neat opportunity. I I really was keen to work with an orchestra uh, and work for an orchestra. 
So the idea of a chorus master position, I mean, not all choruses or large choruses in Canada have these kind of positions where you actually employed by the orchestra. But I was really keen to be in that situation so I could rub shoulders with uh, other wonderful conductors, the music director of the orchestra, you know, work with incredible musicians within the orchestra, uh, be colleagues of theirs, while also working in this area that I'm a specialist in, and, and that's in choral music. It was just an absolutely wonderful decision. You mentioned working with a chorus that connected to an orchestra. So do you find it strange that you would be working with the chorus on this work for a while, and then someone else would be actually conducting the performance? Everyone talks about, you know, what is that like? You spend all this time working a score and you prepare a chorus for a program and then then you hand all that work over, you know? I When I was doing my doctorate at Indiana University, I had the great fortune of working with Professor John Poole. He conducted the BBC Singers and also worked with a large chorus with the BBC and was doing programs, multiple programs a week and worked with so many incredible conductors. He said to me, Tim, you, you should really work with an orchestra. And it's so true. The opportunity to collaborate really with multiple different conductors, you know, the incredible musicians of an orchestra just adds so much more to your work as a choral conductor. I feel like it, aside from there being these great works, these masterpieces that deserve to be performed, it's such a, a wonderful area to continue to grow as a conductor and musician. You know, rather than just living in this realm of, I'm going to conduct choirs and maybe once in a while with instruments. I'm keen to see how we can collaborate with all kinds of different people. So a collaboration with an orchestra makes total sense. And of course, an orchestra can't perform Beethoven's Ninth without a chorus. So, you know, some of this important repertoire, you do need to have a chorus. I mean, Mahler 2, Mahler 8, and you cannot do it without. There's a different sense of humanity and a completely different aesthetic that arrives once that chorus is involved. So, yeah, these experiences uh, have have meant a lot to me. I mean, the idea of learning from colleagues, handing off my work to see how someone else will interpret and take things further. What I've learned all the way through is that no matter all the work I do, how good a job I feel I've done in preparing a chorus, it's always going to be better when someone else directs it. It'll add another flavor, another personality, another chance for something else to emerge. Just like if I get an opportunity to work with a chorus that someone else has prepared, then I'll bring some other new things to that. There are times where it can be difficult, where you feel like, oh, well, that's not what I would choose to do. <laughs> or there's there's interesting choices of tempi or interesting choices of articulation and whatnot. But at the same time, it just opens your mind to the possibilities. And I think as a musician and a conductor, I continue to grow from that experience. And you also mentioned that you were also working with the Spiritus Chamber Choir. Yeah, that was really, uh, I'm, it's hard to believe that it's been a couple of years now since I've worked with Spiritus. You know, a big part of my heart is with this ensemble, Spiritus Chamber Choir, as well as the Calgary Philharmonic Chorus. Um, but Spiritus was a fantastic chamber choir founded by David Wilson and a lot of interested singers in the late 90s. I had had a chance to hear the group along the way. They'd done a wonderful recording uh, early on, and I was really impressed with the work that they'd done. So getting a chance to audition with them, I heard the sound and I heard the abilities of the ensemble very quickly. And what was fun with Spiritus is that we just 
grew from there. And I felt that we grew artistically, we grew musically. And that group allowed me to try all kinds of crazy things. We've tried some unique projects. We've done some early music projects with early instruments, uh, many different guests coming together. We'd done uh, new commissions and new works. We did mixed programs. We did some very difficult repertoire. <laughs> Uh, we did recording projects, and really, it, it felt like all of my interests uh, as a conductor and as a musician were able to be seen through with that ensemble. And, and of course, there's always little barriers, whether it's financial or whether it's uh, time. But we recorded, we toured. Well, we went to Scotland and Ireland, uh, one of our tours. But early on, we went to France, uh, participated in uh, competitions as well. So there were just so many wonderful experiences with that group of people. And it was amazing to think of what we did in the 11 years I was with them. Speaking about a choral singing more generally, I get the idea that, let's say, over the time that you have been active, interest in choral singing has gone up. Do you have a theory about about why that is? I, I don't have too many theories, although I feel like it just it continues to be my uh, fuel my energy and drive to make choral music is that the human voice is so special. I mean, I think, of course, I love instrumental music too, but there's something very unique about the human voice that you're having to share your soul uh, as a singer. I mean, it's it's not just as simple as singing the right note and the right rhythm. Uh, no instrument is, but there's something about the human voice that it, often for it to really sound and sing well, you need to be sharing a big part of yourself. So a, a big part of your heart, a big part of your soul. For me, that's what makes a, a choral ensemble, a vocal ensemble, so beautiful and unique. I mean, people's own voices are being shared together in an ensemble. And and it's amazing the, the, the power of the human voice, but also the capabilities, you know, whether it's high or low or fast or slow or or different kinds of unique sounds using diction and using extended technique for, for the voice. I think there's just a, an incredible amount of music out there and, and so many different directions you can go in vocal choral music. I was talking to a colleague just recently, an orchestral conductor. There are certain norms with an orchestra, seating, the proper makeup of an ensemble and what the instruments you need. And of course you do need the right combination of voices for a choral ensemble to sing certain repertoire. But in a way, it's more malleable. I mean, there's not, you have quite a variety to work with and, and in terms of the, the music and the centuries of music we have to, to choose from. So I do enjoy that. I enjoy the flexibility of what choral music is and what it can be. Like we were talking about Beethoven 9, and then I could talk about a, a little Renaissance motet with four voices. It's amazing to think of, and, and for me, I love all of this music. <laughs> I can't leave some of it aside. There's something about the human voice and sharing that. It really is sharing people's own person with an audience. I, I wondered if, because the idea of singing in choir is something people find easier to relate to than playing an instrument, do you ever find that people are not taking what you do as seriously as they might do? things with instruments? I think so. I would say that that at times, uh, you know, there can be assumption that, well, you're just using your voice. You know, it's, it's an, there's not much to it. But I think to do it really well, any of us who have studied voice and 
worked at it, it takes quite a bit of work and it took quite a bit of an effort, quite a bit of study. It's um, as significant as playing an instrument. So yeah, you, we can fight that. Uh, I prefer to, to work in collaboration with instrumentalists to also allow people to hear that, wow, there's such opportunities with voices and and boy wow the the work that uh, we can do can be understood in the same way as listening to a symphony orchestra or a chamber ensemble so yeah i mean that's part of my work my ongoing work to keep uh, carrying that flag and making sure that people know that it's um, as important and it takes quite a bit of study and mastery speaking of what it takes to reach a high level if you are in a rehearsal what are you doing in the rehearsal? What, how uh, does that work? How does it get better? I think the best rehearsals for any ensemble are when people bring everything they can to that collaboration. Everyone there is you know, working to their true potential. The best collaborations are when I'm feeling as prepared as I can and understanding of, of a score, but also those around me that, that are gathered together for that rehearsal or performance are also engaged that way. Sometimes it takes difficult music in a way for us to all feel like, ah, yeah, we're digging in. So there's something about everyone coming to the table with all they have. But as a conductor, there's a lot of encouraging that goes on, frankly. I mean, and that's partly my personality, a a belief in others. I mean, I have this wonderful belief and optimism in, in other people's abilities. I sometimes believe they can do much more or go further than they think. You know, I'm probably harder on myself than I am others. I, I feel that a group of people can create such beautiful things. So if I come to a room or come to a space where I'm in rehearsal with a group of people and I keep that kind of mind and an open mind about the potential, I think it really can inspire our work to, to continue down that path. And always, always feel like it's never something that's done. We're always creating. It's wonderful sort of sandbox of creation when we're in rehearsal and we're making music. So it's not just, okay, let's fit this in as a jigsaw puzzle and then it's done. It's more that we're learning how to bring all of our musicality to the, to the group and also bring our ears. It's the ears that take it to the next level. It's the ability to listen to, to others. Maybe that's something that I think is a bit of a stamp of my the groups that I work with. I try to I try to allow or challenge people to to listen to all the people around them. And I mean that in not just a musical way, but being willing to listen. Sometimes we can get annoyed at someone that we're sitting near and we just just it's like, okay, well, I, I I can't think of that anymore. But no, we just allow us to listen and collaborate with all the different abilities in an ensemble. I think that's a, a special thing if we're all allowed to be there bringing what, what we have, whatever gifts we have, whatever talents we have, whatever prep we have, and that's what we need to bring. Do you give a lot of physical advice since singing is a very physical activity? I do, and I guess well, that goes back to my early years is studying voice too, and, and I've actually kept that up. I do little lessons with people here and there, and I through my master's degree and my doctorate, I studied voice. So I did a voice minor. It's something that I continue to work on. It, it, I do enjoy the opportunity to, to spend time on my own instrument and not worry about everybody else too. So there's something about spending time. That's my own personal musical outlet. I don't find an outlet in piano at all. 
I'm a horrible pianist in many ways at this point, but I use it as a tool. Whereas voice, I actually feel like I can say something or I, I can express myself musically. Yeah, there's a physicality, there's there's vocal technique, there's there's a lot that we approach on technique and and vocalism and the the physicality of that and diction. I mean, is that everything? It's everything in in singing and choirs. Think about how a, a voice instead of a brass instrument that has a, a bell that's always constant and maybe there's valves that change things inside but in with the human voice we're changing that bell at every moment and it has the ability to be malleable and change so there's so many sounds that we're working with think about how many variables there are it's like infinite that's where some of our fine finesse can go come uh, as an ensemble where we work on those sounds and we unify or diverse diversify the sounds so there's all different kinds of ways you can work if you were to divide performing or music into the performance the rehearsal and individual preparation how much energy would you assign to each or where is the real action is it at the performance or is it at, in the rehearsal well, it's definitely in the rehearsal. And I have to say, I mean, the professional choir, Luminous Voices, we operate in a different way. You know, that's a unique ensemble where the pressure is put on the ensemble to do the preparation before the first rehearsal. I mean, when you're when you're presenting a program on a Sunday and you first get together on a Thursday evening, the pressure is there, especially a difficult program. The singers involved in that ensemble are, that's the expectation. They also know that they need to bring that kind of effort to the first rehearsal. The work that goes in prior to that first rehearsal is what really benefits the whole process. But then the rehearsal process for me is it's a fine line between performance and working technique and working really specific. I feel if we only work on a technical side and only work abstractly, we can really miss out on the performance side. For me, the performance part of rehearsal is hugely important. Like the learning how to interact uh, without talking, you know, it's that musical interaction and working out some of the things through that process. That's incredibly important. And then the performance is just the, the cherry on the top. I mean, that's what we get to do after we put in that kind of work. The best performances, as, as we all know, are the ones where we've done the most preparation. As you go on through your musical career, you realize more and more coming back to major works or, or important works in your repertoire allows you to have such a different perspective and you keep building on that. It's never the same way and, and you keep building the skills for performance. So, you know, sometimes we think, oh yeah, we were, we're ready for that performance. And we, that was a great performance. But if you were to come back with the same ensemble with that repertoire a year later, you could bring so many more layers to it. That's what's so much fun too. <laughs> you know, it's never done. It's always evolving. You mentioned the Luminous Voices. Why don't you just talk a little bit about the genesis of that project? Yeah, well, Luminous Voices, you could think of it almost as a dare. I mean, <laughs> starting a professional ensemble, it, in hindsight, it's a crazy idea. At the same time, it, you know, it's been extremely rewarding. Spiritus Chamber Choir, we were able to do so many different things. And I've always feel like that ensemble was, could be even more experimental in some ways than a professional ensemble because it, it doesn't run on the same teetering level of paying the musicians and having to make sure we have the ticket sales and all those things. But 
with Luminous Voices, it was really an opportunity to see where can we continue to take this. And I think for Calgary, I felt like there was an open space, an opportunity for an ensemble such as Luminous Voices to emerge and grow. Um, in Canada, there's so many wonderful professional ensembles uh, and choirs across the country. And there are many models of that I had been inspired from growing up and having a chance to hear the Alora singers and then also singing in Procore Canada in Edmonton, uh, doing the conducting workshop with the Vancouver Chamber Choir. Of course, always hearing the Elmer Eisler singers out, out of Toronto, Tafa Music Chamber Choir, all these wonderful professional ensembles. And I felt like, well, Calgary needs to have a group like this. Spiritus Chamber Choir, in a sense, was that uh, ensemble in many ways. But I felt like there, there was an important role for for us to play in the community in, in valuing singers and creating value there. And hopefully that that also has a positive influence on the community in general, the choral community in Calgary, and perhaps inspires younger people, but also may be of inspiration, continued inspiration for the amateur choirs, so many great amateur choirs in the city. There was you know, a few friends that were involved in starting this ensemble. I've been very fortunate to work with great people on the board and great singers who have been keen to invest that time and energy into uh, into this group from an early stage. And I was also really fortunate with the Calgary Philharmonic to to launch our first concert as part of a CPO festival concert. So our first concert was in 2012 in November, part of a War and Peace festival. And so we were a side concert at uh, the Cathedral Church of the Redeemer in Calgary. I have such great memories of the start of that ensemble because it was a packed church, CPO audience. Really, it was an uh, amazing experience to, to hear this ensemble launch and since then continue to grow. I mean, what, what are we, eight years in now? <laughs> it's amazing. Well, anybody can hear the Luminous Voices because you've recorded a number of albums. The most recent one is called Sea Dreams. Or should I say Juno nominated Sea Dreams? I can't imagine that gets old. Oh, wow. I can't believe it. That's I know. It's amazing. It really is an honor. Yeah, hearing that news on, uh, well, it was March 9th. That, I just can't believe it. This is a recording of uh, music, choral music by Peter Anthony Tanyi. Peter Anthony Tanyi, Canadian composer, lives in Halifax now. He actually worked for years in Calgary, so there's a Calgary connection to Peter. We had done portions and then the entire responsio of his that includes four singers and bass clarinet. And that was in 2016. And was really keen to explore more of his music. And it was amazing to, that Sarah Hansenoko and uh, Sarah McDonald approached me about a commissioning project because one of the Sarahs had met Peter in Banff at the Banff Center. It was it almost came two ideas came together without having to drive it myself. And it was amazing to see how this emerged. So we Came up with the project, the commissioning project, and applied to the Canada Council and commissioned this work for two flutes and choir. So it was a major work, 20 minutes, 22 minutes in the end for double choir and two flutes. Really fantastic, beautiful work. Started the workshopping in 2017, and then we performed it, premiered it in 2018, and decided that we would record it after that concert. So that the evening after the concert, we did a recording. And that was the first step. We didn't set out saying we're definitely going to do a full-length recording. But after the success of that premiere and recording session, 
we decided to go down the path of doing a higher recording of of his music. So it's not all of his choral music, but Peter and I talked about what would work well on a CD recording, an album, including some of his shorter pieces, simpler works that uh, any choir could pick up and take, as well as this larger work, the 22-minute Sea Dreams. And then also a frequent collaborator of his, uh, Jeff Riley on bass clarinet, he joined us on two tracks. So Jeff was out at the Banff Center, and then we did a recording session with him. He came into Calgary. Uh, that was late 2018. And then we finished off the recording with one other session in August 2019, and then finally got the CD released in 2020. So it's it's amazing because, you, you, again, it's one of those things you set down a path and you don't necessarily see that it's going to reach this point. But we put in the effort in a few different places and then came out with a wonderful recording with a uh, shows a nice breadth of what's of Peter's music, really wonderful variety of what his music sounds like and the different styles of his, his writing. Well, congratulations. It sounds great. Thank you. Imagine you are invited to guest conduct a choir and there is music ready for you to conduct. And you think to yourself, the audience is going to be in great hands because this is my kind of music. I uh, have an affinity to this. I am ready for this. What are some of the pieces that would be on that program? There's so much to choose from. There's this wonderful uh, unaccompanied a cappella mass setting by Frank Martin. It is it's just one of these great masterpieces of the choral repertoire. So his mass for double choir, Mess pour double pour a cappella. That is a piece that I'll want to keep coming back to for my entire life. I mean, it's just stunning harmonies, rhythms, chant, bass. It really runs the gamut. So for me, that's a, an, an incredible piece for sure. I'd love to have some Monteverdi in there. So I'd want to go to Monteverdi, some of the madrigals, maybe even some of the his Vespers, 1610. There has to be some Bach. <laughs> so it's going to be one of our more recent large Bach uh, performances with Luminous Voices is uh, the Bach St. John Passion. Of course, that's not a part of a program. That's a full program. That, that's going to be on my list. That piece in particular, St. Matthew, uh, I know well, and it's an absolute masterpiece. But the St. John, I've actually sung as tenor soloist three or four times. I've sung many times in, the, in a choir. I've prepared the chorus for other people. So it's, it's, it's a piece that I'm uh, very close to, the B minor mass of, of Bach. And then, you know, I think of this new works that we've commissioned. I mean, Zachary Wadsworth, The Far West. That's another important, important piece, I think. And important in my growth as a conductor and, and a musician. But I think it's important in the repertoire. And I, I, I'm really proud that we were able to premiere such, a, such an amazing piece of music. That I would fit in there as well. In terms of listeners, would you recommend a Canadian piece that people might not know about. I was definitely going to recommend two works, and these are two of our major commissions with Luminous Voices. It might seem a little bit uh, self-serving to recommend these, but at the same time, being part of a process of premiering a new work, and uh, the one being a cantata that's 45 minutes long with string orchestra, chorus, and tenor solo, that's The Far West by Zachary Wadsworth. And the other is Sea Dreams, a you know, 22-minute piece by 
Peter Anthony Tanyi for two flutes and, and choir. Those, you know, being part of the process from the beginning and the workshopping and even discussing ideas and then seeing that through to performance and then finally to recording. You know, obviously you you get to know the music in, in that process from beginning through to the end. And I look forward to the chance that we perform these pieces again. And I think they're important works. I think they're significant and really showcase these composers in, in unique ways. So th those are definitely two pieces that I recommend and, and composers that I appreciate. Absolutely. Very good choices. Finally, you are a professor at the University of Alberta now. When you're thinking about what your students uh, should be learning or what, what is the kind of message you, you want to give your students beyond technique? What is the, the larger message you hope to give them? Keep listening and keep being curious. Any of us grow as musicians, as artists, when we remain curious. And we, when we learn that our growth and our knowledge and, and our ability to make music never never stops growing. I mean, we're, we're always adding to it. So I think the idea of, of being open to different sounds, being open to different music and uh, different ideas, and being willing to be curious and listen, I think that's crucial. I mean, I sometimes think of a conductor as a professional listener. We can, we're involved with our technique, our conducting technique. We're involved in, in building and, and helping bring people together. But we're also involved as professional listeners. I mean, that this is what I'm doing most of the time. I'm sitting, listening, and, and reacting, and interacting as well. Yeah, listening is huge. Keep listening to music. Keep going to concerts. Keep going to rehearsals. Keep listening from the inside and the outside. And keep curious about music that you don't know. I think that's the important thing. It's so easy to just stick with what we know, but it so much that we can learn from the things that we don't know yet. <laughs> you know, like we got to keep keep willing to learn. Well, that sounds like good advice for us all. Professor at the University of Alberta, Artistic Director of the Luminous Voices, Dr. Tim Shantz, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Jonathan. This is great. I enjoyed it. I, I love this idea. So Culture Monster, here we go. Another excerpt from the Luminous Voices album, Sea Dreams. As always, there are a lot of links in the show notes about the people, topics, and music discussed in today's episode. Remember to spread the word about Culture Monster. One way is to click the share button in your favorite podcasting app. You can also support the podcast at buymeacoffee.com slash culturemonster. Next time... I will tell the story of why there are two skulls in Haydn's tomb. I'm Jonathan Gressel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>